This wow. is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, LSU readies for artificial intelligence. And a British cult horror film is celebrating a golden anniversary, just in time for Halloween. But first... If you stepped outside in New Orleans yesterday morning, chances are you noticed a thick fog cascading over the city. But in addition to being unpleasant and foul-smelling, the fog is also dangerous as it likely caused a multi-car pileup on I-55 that took the lives of at least seven people and injured at least 25. Here to tell us more about this fog, its causes and consequences, is Alex Lubin, reporter for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you start by telling us what caused this fog? Given the conditions in um, in Jean Lafitte, there there are swamp fires underway. As of yesterday, they were just 52% contained. Um, they are big blazes. Uh, that combined with um, sort of seasonal fog uh, produced this, what what is being called a super fog, which is just an extremely dense fog. Um, I drove through it a little bit yesterday. You really can't see very far in front of you. Um, People who were involved in this crash reported a visibility of just about six feet. I, you know, I was just standing, you know, they would point, they would say, you know, you can't see, you're standing about just a few feet from the door to this restaurant. They said, you couldn't see that on the road. Um, uh, so yes, the, it's, um, it is severe and officials are expecting it to continue for the next several days. What do we know about the victims, the injured and the survivors? Well, so where I was yesterday, um, a number of the survivors had gathered at uh, Mittendorf's, which is a, a seafood restaurant that was um, closed for the day, but graciously opened their doors to the to the survivors. They had enough space to to bring a lot of people in and um, got food for them and and water and, and gave them a place to wait for their families to come. Um, they, um, you know, they were all sorts of folks. They were folks commuting to work. They were folks. You know, I spoke to a woman who was going to pick her uh, friend up from the airport. Um, the it seems like anyone who was on that bridge um, at that time would have been affected by this by this crash. There was no escaping it. Um, as far as the victims, we know that there are at least seven of them, um, but we're still. I think we don't know. We don't know who the victims are yet. The, those names haven't been released, um, but we will report on it when we do. Can you tell us a bit more about the response from uh, both the first responders and police and also about the community members? As I mentioned, um, businesses along I-55 opened their doors to survivors. People were kind of walking away from this and needing a place to to land. And um, I know I, I was at two places yesterday where there were Mittendorf's and the Gators Den, and both were um, welcoming survivors into their establishments and and providing them food and water and phone access if they needed it. Um, this was on, a, on, a, on an interstate, so, so state authorities were, were really the first responders. My understanding was that they were hampered by a a, a tanker exploded um, and there was hazardous material that need to, needed to be cleaned up and they didn't have access to the whole scene at the end of the day yesterday. They seemed to be working quite hard to clear the wrecks, but there were so many cars piled up. You could not have driven a car down that stretch of road. Alex Lubin is a reporter for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate. Thanks for being here. Of course. Thank you. 
Across the country, educators are bracing for the use of artificial intelligence in the classroom, while some are concerned that AI might enable students to cheat or slack on their work, others are excited for the educational opportunities the new technology might bring. Among the schools adding AI to the curriculum is Louisiana State University, where the College of Humanities and Social Sciences is aiming to offer AI-engaged courses as early as next semester. Susan Weinstein is the chair of LSU's English department, and she joins us now. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And we are also joined by Rachel Howitt, professor in LSU's English department. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Susan, let's start with you. We've heard a lot of teachers express their concerns about AI, but you seem excited. Can you tell us about why the use of this technology excites you and what new opportunities it may bring? Yeah, well, I think um, I understand the concern. I think some amount of concern is warranted because um, we don't yet have the, the structures in place to figure out when it is being used for what purposes, right? I think that what's what is exciting about it are the things, partly the things we just don't know about it yet, um, um, that we can kind of learn together with our students. So today in class, um, we've been reading about AI and writing for the last two weeks in my class, and we'll, we'll finish up next week. Um, and we've read articles by um, professional writers who uh, played around with um, AI platforms to try and get them to write something in the writer's own voice. And um, they talked about exactly how much work goes into making that happen. Um, and so one thing I thought it was interesting is that it, it brings me and my students back to an, uh, you know, a longstanding conversation about how much work writing actually takes. Whether you're the one putting the pen to paper or whether there's a program doing it for you, there's still a lot of work involved on the individual's end. And Rachel, what about you? What excites you about using AI in the classroom? Yeah, I'm very excited about using it, um, partly because I, w- I want to learn more about it. And I kind of want to learn what its limits are, how it works. Um, I kind of want to say how it thinks, but I don't know if that's really the right word. I think that when talking about AI or things like chat GPT, it's kind of this like nebulous taboo topic and it's out there and we tell students don't even think about it, don't use it, don't even look at it. But what even is it? We're not really sure. So I think this is an exciting opportunity to learn alongside my students and to model how you can Uh, use discernment with this new tool, how you can use it ethically and wisely in your academic careers. I'm excited about modeling this curiosity with my students and showing them that you can approach these new tools with this ethical curiosity. Susan, can you tell us how exactly AI will be used in the classrooms? What technology will you be using and how will it be incorporated into lessons? So that's one of the things that's being figured out right now, right? So um, how each person uses it will probably be a little bit distinct. Um, I can, you know, give you my own example, which is that we're taking it as both a subject and an object of study, right? So as a subject of study, we're reading about AI. We are reading some of the arguments for and against it. And then we're also playing around with it ourselves in the classroom. Today, we we um, created a prompt together as a class, and then each person plugged it into ChatGPT. And we were looking at um, the similarities and differences of what 
each person got in return. Um, and it gave us some insights. We, we developed a list of findings about some commonalities and some things that maybe weren't very good. Um, one of the things we learned, we noticed is that we asked it to produce a poem um, about a person who's struggling with anxiety over something. And almost every one of the poems it produced had this very hopeful ending, you know, that said something like, but I will persevere, but I will find, fight my way through the darkness. And it just seemed like this odd tendency that was showing through for it to, for it to be hopeful. <laughs> Rachel, what about you? How will you incorporate the technology into lessons? Yeah, I'm planning to incorporate this into my English 2000 course, which at LSU that is uh, focusing on crafting arguments and learning the rhetoric behind arguments. So uh, historically in my English 2000 courses, I focus on teaching students how to craft arguments when self-advocating. So identifying a problem that they see, whether that's on campus, in their professional lives, interpersonal lives, whatever it may be for them and learning how to craft effective arguments to argue for an improved version of whatever that problem may be. So unlike what's talking about where it's both subject and object, this will be in my classes more of uh, a classroom activity that will use utilizing ChatGPT and other generative AI platforms to kind of provide students with a debate platform to input their argument and have in real time a rebuttal provided to them that maybe their peers wouldn't be able to think of. We are speaking with Susan Weinstein, chair of LSU's English department, and Rachel Howitt about the use of AI technology in the classroom. Well, of course, there are always concerns that students may use AI to cheat. We've seen how ChatGPT can write full papers. What safeguards are in place to keep students from plagiarizing? Um, That is a work in progress. Students are able to produce uh, these kinds of texts and submit them, and we don't yet have the technology that can recognize in a really confident way um, when something has been written by ChatGPT, right, or by an artificial intelligence. We have plagiarism checkers, but apparently those are not terribly effective. I think that what we can do is think about um, what we say to our students up front about these this technology, right? So so there's been a lot of discussion around what statements we put on our syllabus um, to let students know very clearly that they are responsible for the quality of the work that they turn in. Um, that what I've asked my students to do is to include in anything they turn in whether or not they have used some form of um, artificial intelligence. So if they've used a grammar check, if they've used uh, ChatGPT, say for um, brainstorming, right? Or uh, an editing um, uh, platform or something like that, I just ask them to tell me so that I don't think that they have been using it in a dishonest way. But ultimately, um, I think one of the things we have to do is make sure students understand that they're responsible for what they turn in, no matter who or what generated it. I tell my students that if you are submitting a paper with ChatGPT, that it's incredibly shortchanging your talent. A ChatGPT paper is far less compelling, far less interesting to read, even if, you know, there are grammar issues or they don't follow writing conventions to a T. They will be able to produce a paper 
that is so much more compelling uh, than a, an artificially intelligent uh, produced paper. Are there any efforts or programs in place to make professors and teachers more comfortable with this technology? And for those who are less enthusiastic about AI, what might you say to get them on board? So some of the questions about things like accountability are things that I think our student accountability um, office at LSU is working on, right? Because they they have entered a whole new world, right? Just this year of trying to figure out how to how to concerns from from teachers who are saying, I think that this paper was generated by by AI because the tools aren't there to figure that out. Um, I think uh, SAA student accountability is really very much in the process of trying to figure out how to do that. Um, in terms of bringing people on board, you know, I'm not a proselytizer for AI. I have what I think is kind of a balanced view. I think there are opportunities and I think there are um, concerns. And I think what I want to simply say is we can't run away from it, right? It is here. And so we have to figure out how we're going to navigate it, how we're going to negotiate it. We can choose to simply make this, the entire subject of it forbidden in our classrooms, but the students know it exists. Um, so my feeling is because it is here, we must address it and we must think about it with our students. Susan Weinstein is the chair of LSU's English department and Rachel Howitt is a professor in the department. Thank you both for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. The 1973 British cult horror film, Theater of Blood, starring Vincent Price and Dame Diana Rigg, is coming to the Britannia Theater for a 50th anniversary Halloween presentation. The film is scored by award-winning composer Michael J. Lewis, who will be in attendance and performing just ahead of the screening. Michael J. Lewis is in our studio. Welcome to the program. And thank you for having me. This is a treat. There is so much chalked into this film. Horror, comedy, drama, and big doses of Shakespeare. This film was considered by Vincent Price to be his personal favorite of all his films. Can you set the stage for us? What is the storyline, and how does the Bard's works become a focal point? Well, Vincent Price, Edward Lionheart as his name is in the movie, um, had been a, a Shakespearean actor all his life. And it was his the last year of his performances, he was going to retire, and he expected the uh, theater critics' circle to give him the outstanding award of the year, instead of which they give it to a brilliant newcomer, which annoyed Lionheart immensely. And so, armed with himself and his daughter, Edwina, they decide to bump off, or in, 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 in less English words, to um, eradicate the uh, <laughs> critics, um, murder each one in the manner of a Shakespearean drama. Ah. Juicy. <laughs> Juicy. Yes. 
Now, you are a Welsh-born composer. Tell us about yourself and how you came to compose this score. Well, my name is Michael J. Lewis, and I was born in Wales. I was a choir boy when I was uh, just six years old, and I graduated to be the church organist when I was 10. Music was in my blood. I went to London, studied music, harmony and counterpoint and composition at the Guildhall School of Music, and then I was out in the marketplace. One of the first uh, shows I wrote was a show called Please, Sir, which was never produced. Also, made an interesting listeners to know that Rice and Weber were working on the same show at the same time, and their oh, right. show wasn't produced either. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then through that show, I did get my first movie, which was The Mad Woman of Chaillot with Catherine Hepburn, um, which is a nice way to start a career. Yes. And, and then after that, I did Julius Caesar with Charlton Heston. And so when Theatre of Blood was produced, they obviously went and they looked for a so-called Shakespearean composer. And I was offered the, the, the film as a uh, horror film. And I said, oh, no, 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 I, I don't do horror films. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, they came back and said it was now a black comedy. So they persuaded me to go. And I saw the movie, fell in love with it. As Vincent Price says, it was his favorite movie. because It was such fun, you know. Now, this movie was considered by many to be ahead of its time. It was not the typical 1970s slasher horror film, although there was plenty of blood and heads do roll literally. I noticed, despite the violence, that you have composed some of the most beautiful music in those very scenes. How did that come about? Tell us about your thought process and why it works. <laughs> well... Thank you very much indeed. Um, and those are sentiments echoed by a, a lot of people. One of the great joys of working on Theatre Blood was the director, Douglas Hickox, who unfortunately died far too young. But he and I had a great rapport, and Douglas had a great sense of humor. And he said, you know, it's a black comedy, and hence we need to bring as much drama and darkness and humor <laughs> into the show. And so as we worked on the, the rough cut of the show, we tried this bit of music, and we tried this bit of music for my earlier movies. And the further away we went from being on the nose, right, the more oblique we became, um, the more in counterpoint to the picture we became. So like in Cymbeline, when they're cutting off the head, Douglas said to me, he said, why don't we um, try to be a little Dr. Kildare? Now, at that time, in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, there was, in this country and all over the world, in fact, a highly popular TV show called Dr. Kildare with Richard Chamberlain. And they had this somewhat saccharine music behind uh, Dr. Kildare. And so I wrote this tune for piano, and strings, and Douglas said, oh my God, he said, that is absolutely perfect. And the rest is history, right? And it's, it's one of the most famous scenes from the movie. Again, because, because the, 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 the music plays with the film, but also in texture plays opposite, right? Um, 
And, and you know, the other sequence that people refer to as the trampoline fight, where two actors are fighting away on these trampolines, a sword fight on a trampoline. And it's because there were two characters, I decided to, to write a fugato, which is two themes chasing each other, right? <laughs> and that worked out extremely well too, right? You know? So we were not taking ourselves too seriously here, right? Um, but the more adventurous we became, the more successful those music and film sequences became. And thank God, 50 years later, I mean, people are still talking about it. And in fact, in November, the very first vinyl issue of the soundtrack from Theatre of Blood is coming out, which is very exciting. Now, where was the movie filmed? The movie was filmed all on location in London, and um, the final sequence was shot in the theatre in West London, um, and that's where I met Vincent Price for the first time. And so we went up onto the uh, rooftop of this theatre where you could see all over London, and um, all Vincent wanted to talk about was cooking. <laughs> yeah, he was a great cook and he, he loved the movie and he loved doing Shakespeare um, but he also loved talking about cooking and of course it was on that movie that he met his wife Carl Brown so there's a lot of good happy things happening on the show Yeah. now what will be the takeaway for today's audiences some who may not have seen this film the first time around the cast itself is like a who's who of British theatre in the mid-20th century, right? You know, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Um, and because they, they, they've all gone now, right? But they were wonderful, wonderful actors, which you will have seen in so many different films. You know, David Lean films, they used a lot of these actors. There was, you know, Harry Andrews, um, Robert Morley, oh, and the great Jack Hawkins. I mean, it, it is it's rare to get a, a galaxy of stars together like that and all really camping it up and having fun. <laughs> and, 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 and at the same time, being much themselves, you know. And, of course, Dame Diana Rigg, as she became, right? She was just fresh off the Avengers, and she was gorgeous, and she and I got on really, really well. And after the show, we actually did some uh, recordings together. Great lady. Yeah. Great actress. Yeah. Award-winning composer, Michael J. Lewis. This has been fun. Absolutely. And as they say in Wales, Dan, Diochen Vauriaun. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. The special 50th anniversary presentation of Theatre of Blood, directed by Douglas Hickox, starring Vincent Price and Dame Diana Rigg, will screen at the Britannia Theatre on Thursday, October 26th. Doors open at 7 p.m. More info is available online at thepritannia.com. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, reporter for the Times-Picayune, The Advocate, Alex Lubin. 
professors at LSU's English department, Susan Weinstein and Rachel Howitt, and composer Michael J. Lewis. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.